Attention all customers on line two, Bloor Danforth. Trains are currently bypassing both ways at Orton Station due to a police investigation. Transit is about choice. How somebody gets around the city depends on a variety of factors. Trip length, price, reliability, safety, and the type of experience they're likely to have on their trip. When choices are limited, the mobility of a city takes a big hit. The result is a loss of opportunity and a lack of possibility. The goal of public transit is to remain a steadfast and attractive choice for traveling the city it serves. That, whatever other modes are available to people, there will always be a public option to depend on. Ideally, for services like the TTC in Toronto, the choice is attractive enough that ridership is steadily growing year over year. More ridership means more money and political capital to expand and improve the system. But the TTC has been having trouble growing that ridership. The growth rate started to stagnate in 2014, which led to a new ridership growth strategy in 2018. The service was up against a heavily congested system, rider frustration with service disruptions, a new fare system plagued with headaches, and ride-hailing services like Uber looked poised to poach the customers who could afford it. The next station is Dufferin, Dufferin Station. Some at the TTC, which relies heavily on the fare box to fund itself, started becoming worried people weren't paying their way. This led to an increase in enforcement through fare inspectors and some very visible abuses of power against vulnerable and marginalized people. For some, the TTC felt like more of a necessity than a choice. The only way, not the better way. And then the pandemic hit. It's especially difficult to make choices in the pandemic. The stakes could be incredibly high. On the one hand, there hasn't been a lot of data pointing to COVID transmission on public transit. On the other hand, anyone who's taken transit in the last year knows not everyone wears a mask, and some bus lines seem as crowded as they were before COVID, despite a massive cratering in ridership numbers overall. How does a system like the TTC bounce back? With all these obstacles, external and internal, standing in the way of healthy growth. How does it ensure it remains a safe, affordable, and reliable choice for everyone? This is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting from yet another lockdown, I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, Professor Akwasi Owusu Bempa talks about a report he co-authored which shows black and indigenous people are disproportionately policed by transit enforcement on the TTC, and what to do about it. And with the latest public health issue of Spacing Magazine hitting shelves and mailboxes, I talked to senior editor John Lawrence about his latest contribution— how cities can combat COVID with, um, well, poop. But first, in keeping with our transit theme, TTC Commissioner and Councillor Shelley Carroll spoke to me about her proposed study into what's currently impacting transit ridership, especially how ride-hailing apps like Uber are taking a bite out of the TTC's potential customer base 
as well as the effect of the pandemic on rider habits and how to recover. Stand by. So, Councillor Carroll, you recently moved a motion at uh, the TTC board to study the impact of ride-sharing services like Uber or Lyft on TTC ridership. And I was wondering, is there a concern these services are harming the transit system? Is that what you're hoping to see with this uh, report? Well, yes. And and for me, I want the TTC to start looking at it now because without a ridership growth strategy, ridership begins to flatline and and land at a place. So all of the things that lead up to that, what's threatening ridership? Uh, uh, is it fares? And a big one, is it cycling? If we have cycling, do we make it so that people make joint choices? Cycling is one of their modes of transport and transit is the other. But the whole so-called rideshare economy uh, has to be looked at, I think, in the new context, in the post-pandemic context, I think we're going to see an even bigger siphoning of transit ridership off to that type of transportation decision because people have, as a result of you know infection control, transmission control, have, have decided that the transit system is less safe. Mm-hmm. And so if it's a short ride, they've begun to opt for ride hailing. And anyone traveling throughout a city you you get into a routine and if it's easy that's where you go to the fact that that in essence any rideshare app it's like open pay i i'm gonna call this ride and it's just gonna come out of my account and i don't have to load a card or any of that nonsense so on a number of levels, we're, I think, losing uh, riders to to ride hailing. And I want a deep look at why. Mm-hmm. Is it the, the payment method? Is it a safety feeling? If we don't look at these things, when it's time to grow the ridership back post-pandemic, we won't know if we're communicating the right messages to get those riders back. Right. So... I feel that, you know, in order to do an adequate study, you got to design the study, you got to spend some time on it. And so I didn't want to wait. I wanted to move it right now to say we're going to need this kind of information to build a post-pandemic ridership growth strategy Mach 2. In the meantime, while we wait for that study, there have certainly been other studies in other cities that have shown that Uber does hurt ridership for transit services, uh, that it does increase congestion it makes me wonder, is Toronto as a city going to look back and wish that it had pushed harder against these uh, ride-sharing services or, or tried to regulate them more intensely, as other cities have done? Oh, I believe they will. Uh, you know, And that's easy for me to say. I was on the side of the councillors who did want to push harder. Right. We weren't the prevailing side, but <laughs> I, you know, I think this is going to be a big look-back-with-regret moment. Because we made it easy for them to function in this city, perhaps too easy. And there is no question that what we want is to have uh, a transit system that is designed such that people make a decision to say, yeah, I could live a carless lifestyle. I've got this bike. I've got this great transit system. 
And I have this sense, it's just, it's anecdotal. I need, I need real data so that I'll know that it's not anecdotal anymore. But just from hearing people talk, it feels like people have now flipped over to, I have this bike and I use Uber. And that's really scary because we, we need to invest a lot to make a really good ridership experience uh, on, on transit. And you don't want to get to the point where there's no point in making that investment anymore because there are some people for whom every transit ride is a long ride. They need us to keep making the investments. Mm -hmm. If we lose the bread and butter that is the short trip, I, I think there's something very telling about the fact right now that in the midst of the pandemic, over 40% of our usual ridership is on the bus network and 20 in some days less are on the streetcar and subway network in the core part of the city. So that, that says to me, okay, people are making different choices now. And maybe the difference here is short trip versus long trip. I don't think it's all just, oh, the frontline workers live out there and they don't live downtown. I'm, I'm not sure that that's realistically, that, that's anecdotal if ever there was something anecdotal. I think there are still a lot of people doing essential work but if the transit trip is short, they're opting out and you starting to use ride hailing. And we, we've got to know exactly why they're making that decision and account for it in our transit planning. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting extra hitch to, to this conversation, which is that the provincial government is currently asking the city to investigate using ride hailing services potentially as the last mile so they call it like if, if you're speaking of long trips uh for listeners it would be the idea of using ride hailing to take you from the end of the transit line to to your house in the inner suburb something like that uh and so that is uh that's a requirement uh <laughs> the city's uh reception of certain funding is is uh is contingent upon uh doing these studies yeah, there's a real push on to do that. And when I moved my motion, it didn't it didn't seem to have the support of the commission until someone added that. But that's why we need a really good study done. And and to say they didn't even need it to be third party, I think was a mistake because the chair saying surely you can just do something and piggyback on the city. I think we want transit specialists to look at why is it so easy for people to flip to that? Is it about how you pay and if it is and we're in the middle of making a decision as to whether or not to renew with presto or whether to contract out and and opt out of presto and have our own fair medium if that's what it takes for us to get the state-of-the-art open pay maybe that's the way we're going well if the fact that it's so easy to pay for a ride share and you don't have to consider how much money's on your card right now if that's part of the decision, and that's what we find out by doing a really good study, then it means that that other initiative that seems like it's something unrelated is actually quite interconnected and has to be resolved ASAP. Because if you, if you have clunky, awkward methods of payment, and one of them is a real easy payment method, and the other one is somewhat awkward, then they're not going to take the short trip. They're just going to take the whole trip by rideshare if they can possibly afford it. Mm -hmm. And if if what happens is we end up with two-tiered mobility, which means you know the lowest income people in the city 
who are riding at a discounted rate anyway are the only ones left on the system, then the system's not viable. So this has to be a good rider experience for everyone. And that's going to take investment. And if we don't, if we don't look at those factors and how they're interconnected, then the first mile, last mile, all by rideshare is extremely dangerous as a concept. Because mm-hmm. then you will have low income discounted fares riding around on buses in the inner suburbs and everyone else on Uber. And you won't have a very viable system. And you'll be dealing with companies who are now, you know, it's very troubling to me. One of my colleagues called Uber a form of public transit. <laughs> Yeah. It's not very transparent for a public service. Oh, that's right. It's not a public service and it ha- is under no obligation to share any of its data with us. Right. That's very troubling. Outside of ride hailing services, the study is also just going to look at uh, changing ridership patterns in general, especially in the context of the pandemic and how we come out of that. Previous to the pandemic, we had a, a very big problem with congestion on the TTC. So, uh, Perhaps it'd be instructive to uh, explain to listeners why we still do want a ridership growth strategy for the TTC. I know that when you're when you're on line one and you can't breathe, you think, please don't grow this ridership anymore. <laughs> but you do have to know that from generation to generation, people are choosing transit in order to be able to in, invest to alleviate that congestion. If you if you haven't got riders coming along then you really can't have a conversation with other orders of government to expand that system. Mm-hmm. And everyone needs that expansion. If we go back to the 80s, Bill Davis knew that, which is why he had a very strict policy that the base system that exists today, we have to put everything we can into keeping that a quality ride, making sure that it has affordable fares and a well-maintained system, and that the the vehicle renewals that are needed for the base system continue throughout the next 20 years during which I'll be expanding subway lines and building a thing called the RT. Mm-hmm. You know, he did massive expansion of line one and line two and the Scarborough RT because ridership is constantly growing on the base system and he could turn at any time to the federal government, whatever party was in power this week and say, this is absolutely crucial. The ridership is growing by this, 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 and this, and you've just got to keep investing in it. This is what's driving our economy, and so on and so forth. We veered away from that. That's elementary transit science, and yet we're not really, we're not really doing it. We have to get to the point where we know as much about the system that exists today and how to alleviate its pressure, and then take that and use that as the case we need to make for expansion. Fair integration needs to have equity built into it so that it becomes the the, the fabled regional transit system. Mm-hmm. And there's no point in investing in this goofy Ontario line that, that runs through the downtown core in a parallel way unless we figured out a way for, for it to really be well-coordinated with the existing system and we accept that it's... Its greatest benefit is the congestion it alleviates affordably, and the premier hasn't really been clear about that yet, but it has to affordably be able to take some ride relief off of line one and line two. 
that's the success story behind everyone being a transit rider in, in cities like San Francisco, where the BART is running right through the same station as the TTC for the, for, for the main part of the core downtown area. It's not, it's not an unviable system. It's done nothing but drive ridership because no one line is overly congested anymore. But they, they had to make the case that they would be able to continue to load riders onto that. That's why, as crowded as it is, you want to make sure you don't have the ridership start falling backwards because it, that, that coming ridership is the case you make to get the funds from feds and provincial governments. Right. As well, uh, the TTC will be um, sharing ride counts with apps like uh, Rocketman to let people know how crowded the uh, the bus that's coming is going to be. Uh, that seems like a handy thing, uh, even post-pandemic, just so you can kind of plan your route. You can decide if you're going to take you know the subway or the bus or you know wait for the next one, that kind of thing. Yeah. And again, we, we don't want it to end up pulling rides away to other modes we, we what we hope is that people will use it to manage their ride mm-hmm. if every time you're heading towards especially you know in the suburbs some people uh, their transit journey is from a suburban bus route point in in the city to where they live which is another suburban bus stop somewhere else in the city mm-hmm. and so you know where they can manage their own day if every time you're heading to the bus it's going to be three little mans. This is obviously an overcrowded bus. Why don't I just run my errands here instead of at my destination at home and get on this bus a half an hour later or 40 minutes later? Mm-hmm. Things like that. What you want to do, though, is make sure that you're running a great system so that it doesn't turn into, I use this app. If I don't like what I see, I'm not taking transit at all. You know, right. If we're running a great system, they won't make that decision. And uh, finally, uh, the TTC board also, uh, they received a review which showed that uh, Black and Indigenous riders were overrepresented in uh, stops by transit officers, uh, transit officer interactions. That's That's been an ongoing concern, and I, I was just wondering if you had a comment for that as well. Well, I'm glad we're finally working on it, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be watching that very carefully. I moved the motion about that, um, not just because of an incident, but in the reporting out of incidents, shortly after I rejoined the TTC in this term of office, mm-hmm. I got a I got a social media post from someone saying, have you ever even been to transit court? And I thought, I don't even know where it is. Right. And I've been a counselor for a very long time. It's across the street. So I took my chief of staff and, and we marched across and we sat in TTC court. And I thought, never mind the the sort of headline grabbing incidents this is pervasive i can see it with my own eyes sitting here in in ttc court for a day Mm -hmm. and you know ever since then we've been sort of moving motions and pulling in staff meetings and and pushing along at this i worry though because uh, a lot of the work is now happening during uh lockdown times and i i don't really have a way of going and monitoring and feeling the impact of it my my usual practice would have been to, uh, when I was on the police board, I would go and be in a room when someone was delivering anti-racism training and, and de-escalation training. I'm going to go and experience it and see if 
this really feels like something that could change culture. Mm-hmm. I'm a little worried because a lot of this work is going on during a time when I can't monitor in that way. But I do have some faith in the people that have been hired. Keisha comes to us with, you know, really good recommendations for culture change in her in her uh, former work life. And so I'm putting all of my emotional investment in her actually making some change here. And if she does, that's going to be amazing. I think it's partly the policing environment that will bring this along so that they realize they have to make these types types of changes as well. But it, it is going to be a tough slog. And sorry, Keisha is? Uh, Keisha Campbell, who is, she's doing some of the culture change work in with, with the, the whole HR strategy to bring about institution-wide training so okay. that this be not just a matter of over-enforcement by transit enforcement officers or special constables, but a whole culture change around how we treat people as they, they board and, and leave our buses, how we, uh, how we treat people when they're climb up through the organization, even a whole amount of anti-racism and equity, uh, uh, confronting anti-black racism partnership. All of that work is, uh, is happening under her watch. Across the service. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Councillor Carroll, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Now, Professor Akwasi Owusu-Bempa teaches under the Department of Sociology at the University of Toronto. In 2019, the TTC commissioned Akwasi and Professor Scott Wortley to conduct an independent review of fair enforcement and special constable data called the Racial Equity Impact Assessment. Phase 1 of their study found a disproportionate number of enforcement interactions with Black and Indigenous riders compared to population size. Professor Owusu Bempa explains what that means in terms of racial equity and what can be done about it. So, my name is Akwasi Owusu Bempa. I'm a um professor at the University of Toronto, a special advisor to the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. I'm trained as a criminologist. Most of my work looks at the intersections of inequality and criminal justice, and I'm particularly interested in the area of policing. So much of my work has looked at how Black people, especially Black people in Toronto, but in other areas as well, perceive and experience the police. So um, their experiences with stop and search practices, carding, of course, was something that uh, I paid close attention to, as well as uh, their experiences during interactions and uh, with respect to things like use of force. So this commission uh, was, uh, sorry, this study was commissioned by the TTC, uh, authored by you and uh, Dr. Scott Wortley. It landed uh, at the board uh, sort of late last year with a sort of background of just before the pandemic happened, we had seen a, a very violent uh, interaction between a, a transit enforcement officer uh, on a streetcar, um, and that that really raised some concerns about you know what what these enforcement officers are there to do, what they're really protecting, and uh, I have to imagine that's part of the impetus for for beginning the study. Yeah, most certainly. I think you know there were a, a couple of uh, high profile uh, instances of. Uh, use of force and questioning by TTC 
enforcement uh, officials. Uh, there was also, of course, data obtained, uh, analyzed and released by uh, the Toronto Star newspaper that documented very clear racial disparities in enforcement practices. Mm -hmm. And so I would suggest that the release of that data, public attention to that issue, as well as the use of force and pressure from the uh, city's ombudsman's office as well, ombudsperson's office as well, uh, led to the uh, initiation of this research, of this inquiry. And uh, without getting uh, too into uh, the methodology, uh, what, what did you and uh, Dr. Wortley begin to look at? Yeah, so Professor Wortley and I were tasked with, uh, first of all, of course, doing a further examination of the historical enforcement data. So taking a look at the enforcement data produced by the Toronto Transit Commission's then Transit Enforcement Unit, both the special constables who hold, you know, quasi-policing powers, uh, special constable powers, as well as the what were then transit fare inspectors, uh, now revenue protection, to see and to examine the racial disparities with respect to different enforcement outcomes. So that was one of the primary tasks we were given. We also held a series of focus groups with enforcement-oriented staff, so those special constables and fare inspectors, as well as their supervisors and other people involved in kind of managing and using the data that they collect to understand, again, how they'd gone about collecting the data that we were analyzing, to understand how they use that data uh, to get their perspectives on the racial disparities that we had observed, and to gain a, a more fulsome understanding about the kind of nature of their work, how they go about their work, and how we you know, would continue to examine the racial disparities and, and potential racial discrimination within uh, enforcement activities at the TTC. Right. And, and so what were you hearing from p people that in the transit enforcement unit when you spoke with them? I should, uh, sorry, I, I forgot the, the other part um, and the subsequent pieces of work that we were uh, asked to do. Uh, we're largely kind of reviewing policy and literature for the TTC as well. So there are a couple of areas for this interim report that we looked at. One was uh, body-worn cameras. Uh, like many uh, agencies, the TTC is looking at the implementation of body-worn cameras. Mm -hmm. We are also tasked with uh, looking at policy around decision-making and discretion. So, of course, uh, in an enforcement capacity, the uh, ability of decision-makers to exercise discretion is one of the reasons we know that uh, racial disparities, differential treatment may arise. And so we were asked to examine that, and then the collection of race-based data specifically. Sorry, I figured I might as well say that, right, yeah. as it was part of what we were asked to do. Yeah, no, it's all good. Um, I appreciate it. Yeah. I, I think anecdotally, uh, a lot of people in Toronto understood that uh, Black people and Indigenous people, particularly men, were over-enforced, not just on the TTC, but in general. But um, what does it mean to really have those numbers, uh, you know, at your fingertips? Yeah, so I think, you know, our analysis and the STARS analysis uh, demonstrated what many people might have suspected and what some people probably already knew based on their own experiences. That is, that we see a, an overrepresentation of Black and Indigenous people in certain enforcement outcomes. And those do in many ways mirror the racial disparities that we see in other enforcement-oriented capacities, especially uh, within policing in this city, right, as well as many other cities. So what was quite interesting, you know, uh, was from our conversations with staff and, and discussions amongst ourselves and, you know, kind of just uh, analyzing the, the environment generally is that much like policing, you know, there are a number of explanations um, for the observed racial disparities. And one of the things that I think we need to make clear at this point in our inquiry is that you know, we haven't come out and, and clearly stated one way or another 
what the likely causes of these disparities are. And so in our conversations, for example, with the special constables and with the fair inspectors, you know, and asking them, you know, how they read the racial differences or, or, or what they uh, thought may account for those racial differences. We heard explanations that would align with those that we would see in, you know, the research literature. So staff talked about the fact that the system is very much a microcosm of society. So issues related to poverty and inequality, issues related to mental health and other forms of marginalization permeate the system, right? And so if we know that patterns of poverty are are not equally distributed uh, across our city, if we know that Black and Indigenous people are more likely to experience poverty, perhaps more likely experience uh, precarious housing, uh, mental health problems and things like that, then we may see a a corresponding uh, relationship with certain types of offending behavior. And that certainly came out in the conversations that we have. Uh, We also know that, uh, you know, patterns of deployment. So where uh, agencies decide to send their staff to engage in enforcement oriented work are are typically not evenly distributed uh, geographically as well. Right. And so when Mm -hmm. we look at the policing world, often what we'll see is that the police are sent to areas where there have been a high number of calls for service or largely where the police have engaged in enforcement activities before. And, you know, we heard similar things as well, that part of the you know, reason for the disparities may be where the enforcement oriented staff are being sent and, and being sent to areas that have a high proportion of, of racialized, especially black and indigenous residents or people that travel through those areas. So the responses we got, you know, were, were, Varied. We certainly heard, you know, kind of denials that racism itself could have anything to do with the racial disparities. Uh, we heard about the impact that um, the report has had on the work of, of enforcement oriented staff and concerns that they had uh, about, you know, being labeled or, or, or branded as racists and the impact on their ability to do their jobs, as well as, of course, you know, pretty dramatic and drastic changes already uh, being seen from the side of the commission itself. And you made a number of recommendations, uh, but the first one I found very interesting, where you recommend aligning the goals and values of the TTC and the Transit Enforcement Unit, uh, because you find they're oftentimes at, at conflict. So I was hoping you could unpack where that conflict is and uh, and how you think this could sort of be a potential solution to uh, equality in enforcement. So uh, by, by stating that we suggest an alignment between the priorities of the enforcement-oriented staff and the commission itself, here what we're really you know thinking about and talking about is fair and equitable treatment. Mm-hmm. You know, the commission has a responsibility, as we outline in the uh, report, based on you know various uh, laws and and you know human rights permit provisions to provide fair and equitable service to its riders, and and we really believe that part of the provision of fair and equitable service really also needs to be the provision of fair and equitable enforcement action too. And so in in thinking about having a a strong customer service orientation, which is something that we've heard a lot in our discussions, you know, a a move from enforcement orientation to a customer service orientation, ensuring that that customer service orientation applies to everybody so that certain groups of people are not targeted for enforcement action or not uh, overly scrutinized or not treated in a more harsh manner. If they are found in violation, for example, of fair policy, then would members of other groups. What we see very clearly across enforcement context is that like privileged people, members of certain racial groups, so typically white people, uh, often older people, and certainly people with higher socioeconomic status, 
tend to benefit from discretion. So when they're caught, you know, breaking a law or violating a policy, they're often the ones who are given a break. Certainly not always. I'm sure many of us know privileged people who are given speeding tickets and dealt with, you know, otherwise harshly by a justice system. But uh, overwhelmingly, the, the research demonstrates that those groups benefit from positive discretion, whereas conversely, depending on the context, but certainly, you know, young people of color, for example, are not given a break uh, to the same extent that, that white kids uh, are given a break by the police when when they break the law and they do things that many young people do. And so it's ensuring that, again, not only is um, kind of surveillance uh, kind of equally distributed and, and the initial enforcement action, but also uh, decisions made about how to proceed with an individual who has violated a, a policy or broken a law uh, are equal across those groups. And were there any other recommendations that came out of this research that you'd like to point to? So I think, uh, importantly, uh, we have a lot of work left to do, and, and some of that work has been pretty seriously derailed by the pandemic. So in order to fully understand the nature of the racial disparities that we've seen, we have to have an understanding of who does and who doesn't violate fair policy, right? Like, especially if we're looking at, at, the, at the fair evasion part of things. And so, uh, and we need to also have an understanding of the racial makeup of transit uh, users. So uh, when comparing the racial disparities or when looking at the racial disparities in enforcement action, we used a couple of benchmarks. So a couple of comparison groups. One was the uh, resident population, so the population of Toronto, and another was the population that said that it uh, used public transit uh, in the census. So a commuter population in the census. But Neither of those give us a perfect measure of who uses the Toronto Transit Commission, mm -hmm. uh, who uses specific lines and at what times of day and forms of, of transportation. And so our hopes was to go out and to do some benchmarking. So actually go out and observe the, the racial differences in, in with respect to the ridership uh, and do some ride alongs as well with uh, enforcement oriented staff. And, and we haven't been able to do that for obvious reasons. And importantly as well, you know, uh, ridership has changed dramatically as well since the onset of COVID. And so even if we'd done so six months ago, we wouldn't have an accurate picture of, of what things looked like before. So right. in, in terms of our, our recommendations, our recommendations are very much preliminary at the moment. Uh, you know, they are, you know, further examine and, and build out a uh, discretion uh, and decision-making policy to examine, of course, the use of body-worn cameras to develop a race-based data collection policy. I think importantly, um, there's a lot more consultation that needs to take place, and some of that, some of that, pardon me, will come in the next phase of our own research. So, uh, public consultations, of course, we need to understand, you know, in, in a broader sense, the public's views and experiences with the TTC and, and uh, with issues uh, related to race, potential racial discrimination as well. And so, we hope to uh, hold a series of, of public consultations, including. Uh, town halls, focus groups with affected communities, as well as a broader survey. So we've certainly got a lot of work left to do. We'll continue to analyze the the data that has been collected and, and conduct some further analysis on that. Uh, you know, you kind of mentioned a point to looking at what other transit commissions, uh, transit authorities have done in this area with respect to uh, allegations of, of racial bias. Uh, continue to monitor the changes at the TTC. I, I must say that I've worked with a number of public sector agencies on related matters. This experience uh, stands out as one that, you know, as we wrote our report, we were continually having to revise what we'd written because changes were happening so quickly at the TTC itself in terms of, you know, the evolution of its uh, enforcement unit. 
and uh, and other related work and you know the development and, and building out of of uh, kind of an equity framework within the the commission itself so it's been an exciting piece of work it's obviously you know uh, very important from my perspective and, and and very relevant at the moment and and kind of ties into larger discussions around racism anti-racism and equity uh, kind of writ large in our society and around the world so a lot left to do um, and we know Tim we outline you know in the next phases uh, or the next phase of the inquiry, what it is that we hope to get done. It'd be nice to come back and talk about that as we do it and when it's complete. Finally, the latest issue of Spacing Magazine is available now. The theme for this one is public health, and it covers a wide variety of pandemic-related issues, history, and the general well-being of the city. For this issue... Spacing senior editor John Lawrence wrote about an unlikely way to identify community outbreaks in a pandemic that could potentially help combat the spread before it gets out of control. The secrets in the sewers. Scientists are actually able to detect the presence of COVID-19 in communities by sampling sewage. The story is called Valuable Crap, the Public Health Dividend in Sewage, and it's available now. Here's John. Well, there's all this research that's kind of clicked in during the uh, pandemic on using the analysis of sewage, um, you know, like toilet waste, basically, to look for the presence of the uh, COVID virus. And it's not the virus per se, but it's like shards of the virus that kind of pass through people's bodies into the toilet, into the sewer system. And there's a huge amount of this research going on in lots of cities around the world. In fact, there's like this research network and there are a bunch of cities in Canada that are involved in this, Ottawa, Kingston, a few others. And essentially the idea is to kind of, to do some sampling and testing to see what kind of viral loads are in the sewage and use that as a sort of a leading indicator of, you know, outbreaks. Uh, because apparently you know, there's this latency period with the infection and, you know, the virus will go through your system before you start to get sick or show symptoms. And, uh, you know, there, I talked to some epidemiologists and, you know, people who are interested in water and wastewater testing who see a lot of potential in this technology. Yeah. Um, you start the story, you, you sort of take us to the work being done in Ottawa, which is specifically looking at, um, wastewater treatment plants something called uh, primary clarified sludge without getting extremely graphic. Uh, what is the process that's being done in Ottawa and then uh, by extension, Kingston and Hamilton? So there are two places that you can test. You can go to the water, the wastewater treatment plant in a city and just sample from there. And then it's basically got everybody's crap goes through those, those facilities. And then you can develop a sort of some estimates on the viral load in that sort of broad community. The other approach is to do it upstream. So you do sampling in like in neighborhoods in, you know, you kind of take off the uh, storm sewer grate and you take samples and take them to the lab and analyze them. And Ottawa was doing the, I believe it's doing the, the sort of wastewater treatment plant approach. Despite the fact that you know, we have like tremendously sophisticated biochemical analysis in our society, of which I know very little. The testing of wastewater um, is a fairly new thing. And, you know, 
it's not surprising that, you know, when you take a jar of it, you get like, you know, as they say, it's very, it's very heterogeneous, right? Like there's so much different stuff in there, chemicals and gasoline and drugs and poop and, you know, the whole gamut. And so the, the trick is to find a test that can sort of find the needle in the haystack, so to speak. So you're looking for, you know, RNA strands of these viruses and you're looking at what they call the signal, which is how much of that shows up in your test sample. Um, and then you kind of move from there. So that's, those, those seem to be the two approaches. Right. Uh, and when you talk about the, the sort of upstream approach that there's a team in, uh, out of Ryerson that's doing that right now in Toronto. Yeah. And so they're, they're looking at sampling near uh, the Toronto Western Hospital. And I think that the, General idea is there are things called sh- sewer sheds. So you're sort of up the, the network of wastewater sewage systems. And so you can then begin to identify areas that, you know, community and say, okay, well, you've got, you know, a lot of um, subsidized housing, for example, or a long-term care facility or a hospital, whatever. And then you can begin to make more sort of focused estimates and, uh, so, for example, if you tested the water outside a, uh, um, the, the wastewater outside a long-term care facility, you might be able to identify the spread of the virus before people become symptomatic. And I think that that's the, the wish, that's the intention, um, for whatever there's another major infectious disease outbreak. Right. In a perfect world, how, how could a public health unit react when uh, these sort of sewage samples say that there is a an outbreak in a given community? Well, you could, for example, you could accelerate testing. You know, the problem with the way that testing has been done in, um, you know, during this pandemic is that people are, you know, they develop a symptom or they're with somebody who's sick. And so their testing is reactive, right? So you react to something that you're experiencing and it's not proactive. You know, so if you're able to say, okay, well, Acme long-term care facility seems to have this high reading. Um, so you go in and test everybody and you immediately can identify who's sick and, you know, or might be sick and who's not and then take the appropriate measures. So that's the general idea. Now, I noticed you said in a perfect world, we don't live in that world. And it turns out that this is actually quite a laborious process because you have to dip jars into sewage and, um, and then take them to a lab where it's not like a, it's not like there's a little sensor that can pick it up in the, uh, the pipe. Uh, you know, and that actually requires bodies to pull those samples out of the ground and, or some kind of pumping system. So it's actually, it's a more complicated process than, uh, you might think, and definitely not automated. That having been said, you, you do mention in the piece that there are some other countries that have sort of advanced this concept, maybe not necessarily for COVID, but for all kinds of things, like you mentioned drugs, chemicals, uh, and you mentioned in the story, the Netherlands and Australia, uh, have sort of already, uh, embedded a system where they can sometimes get r- real-time data for whatever they're looking for. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, for sure. And in, in the Netherlands, you could, you could find these, there's a website, I went to it, where you can see what the viral load is in any particular neighborhood, which, you know, it's a data point that will, you know, <laughs> could cause you to lose sleep if you uh checking that website uh, often enough. From the interviews that I did, what was clear is that there has to be communication between the public health people and the water people, and this does not actually exist in the city of Toronto. You know, it's the old silo problem where there was one 
department that was doing its thing, another department that was doing its thing, and the twain shall uh, won't meet. And you know, water authorities typically you know, at the waste end of things. I mean, they are responsible for treating the waste sewage. And for at the front end, it's also about, you know, uh, making sure that no contaminants go into fresh water. But it's not done with, you know, the kind of public health uh, surveillance notion that informs this approach. Uh, I imagine the the people trying these things out in Ottawa, Kingston, or here in Toronto, they must have permission from the city. So do you happen to know, are any of these municipalities thinking of, you know, scaling this upward or like really looking to cash in on the, the possible wealth of data that comes from everyone's crap? Uh, well, um, certainly the city of Ottawa. So there was, there is actually a high degree of cooperation there between the, you know, water authorities, the, uh, the city, the public health department, and, um, you know, some academics, and there's a network of academics and, you know, chemists and uh, researchers who are kind of working on this. And my sense was that they were very interested in, in, you know, advancing it. You know, Ottawa Public Health has also been exemplary in its ability to communicate with the public about COVID. You know, it's done an excellent job and it's done really well on social media. So, you know, I think that there, there's an example of a city that's looking forward on these things. And I mean, hopefully it'll be another century before we have another global pandemic. But there are other, you know, infectious diseases that could have very disruptive impacts on our society. And so maybe this is a way of kind of tapping into an approach that's preventative or at least more less reactive than the typical approach that we have to infectious disease. Right. I, I suppose the the danger is, like you said, you you hope there won't be another global pandemic, but uh, epidemiologists tend to suggest that these things do pop up from time to time. I guess the hope is that uh, people continue to really study this kind of thing in the off season when, when everything's fine, uh, so that we're ready for the next, God forbid, disaster. Well, and not just study, but I think that this is the, this is the lesson from the Netherlands, is that that the research was institutionalized and that the connection between the two, you know, these two arms of municipal and regional government are connected. And then there's a dashboard and there's information that's available to policymakers that's coming from this infrastructure agency, which manages wastewater. And then, you know, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to reinvent it at each time, right? So, you know, I mean, the last, you know, major global pandemic was MER in, um, in, um, 2009. And, you know, so to your point, I mean, th- this will happen again. And so I, I think that the science proceeds and the governance has to go alongside of it. Well, we'll hold our breath for that one. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Okay, thanks a lot, Glenn. And that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked this episode, please tell your favorite TTC commissioner, your Uber driver, or the good people at the Ashbridge's Bay Wastewater Treatment Plant. If you have a moment, please share, subscribe, or give us a rating on iTunes, as it will help us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at track82. That's all spelled out. If 
If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can reach us on Twitter at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West. And don't forget you can pick up the latest copy of the magazine all about public health today. In the meantime, please wear a mask on the bus. Cheers. Cheers.